You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, we might make a start then. Uh, welcome everyone. Thank you for coming along on this slightly chilly Saturday morning. I'm Josephine Brigginshaw and I'm the Engagement Manager of the Robin Boyd Foundation. So before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we are on the land of the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations and I would like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and I extend that respect to any First Nations people who are joining us today. I would also like to thank uh, the M Pavilion team uh, for collaborating with us to host today's panel and congratulate them on bringing this stunning pavilion designed by Allzone to Melbourne. And the foundation looks forward to being involved in the M Pavilion 10 program later this year. So for those of you who might not know much about the Robin Boyd Foundation, the foundation is the custodian of the legacy of Australian modernist architect, author, critic and public educator Robin Boyd and the iconic Walsh Street house he designed, built and inhabited. We deliver a design-focused program of house tours, talks, symposiums and exhibitions that aim to educate and increase community awareness by generating dialogue, understanding and participation. Currently, this includes engagement with tertiary students and into the future, we would like to see this extend to secondary and primary students. Our convener today is Louise Wright, who amongst many things is a director at Baracko and Wright Architects and a member of the Foundation's Boyd Circle, which is a convivial group of design leaders who make positive contributions to our advocacy activities, and in this case, it's our work in the area of design literacy. For Louise, design thinking has been a long-standing interest. In 2012, she completed a PhD that raised possibilities for further research into how we teach architecture and the broader applications of flexible design thinking, including the sometimes mysterious ways designers know and do. She's recently been appointed as a practice professor at Monash School of Architecture, where she employs a knowing through doing pedagogy in developing and delivering design make studios. So I would like to say thank you to Louise for prompting this discussion and hand over to her to introduce our wonderful panel and get the conversation started. Thanks Louise and everyone on the panel today. Thanks. Thanks, Josephine. Welcome, everybody. I'll start by introducing our panel, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about design thinking and then hand over the discussion. We have Andrew Atchison, second from the end. <laughs> Andrew is the education manager at the M Pavilion. He's creating platforms and invitations for learning. Andrew's work in education focuses on the power of the direct encounter with works of architecture, art and design. 
Currently, he's the education manager at M Pavilion, and before this, he held the role of artist educator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Lira Asensio Villoria, next to me. The co-director of ADD&F and senior lecturer in urban design and architecture at the University of Melbourne. Lira teaches design in ter tertiary education, but also adults who are not necessarily designers. Monique Dully, <laughs> Director of Learning and Growth, Xavier College, and the National President of Design and Technology Teacher Association, otherwise known as DATA, which is how we made connection into this world. <laughs> Monique is on both sides of teaching in the classroom, but also developing this curriculum and how to teach. <laughs> and Peter Murphy is lecturer and leader of design and technologies education. He is also a designer and teaches the teachers. He's trained as an industrial designer and worked in many fields and is currently working in technologies and STEM at La Trobe, Southern Cross and Catholic universities and also lectures in industrial design at RMIT University. Peter is also involved with Dutta, a former president, is that correct? Yes. So, today we are here to hear about this approach in the classroom and the wider context that this relatively new approach to teaching um, and the issues associated with that. It's about coming together, unsiloing, sharing approaches and tactics and airing some issues and ambitions. It's hosted by the Robin Boyd Foundation because Robin Boyd was a prolific communicator and design literacy advocate. He would have loved this application of design thinking. The Robin Boyd Foundation would like to understand better how they may extend Boyd's legacy in the important field of kindergarten to year 12 education. It's very connected already to tertiary education. So in the spirit of design thinking, we are here to inquire. So design thinking. <laughs> Many of you would already be familiar with this. But it's a term used to describe a type of inquiry. It is applied to many disciplines outside design. Because of its processes, it is very useful at uncovering solutions or unexpected outcomes. But it's most interesting to teachers, I think, because of the deep learning involved, because of its process, which is iterative, where new information is constantly admitted and questions reframed. In this way, 
The more specific the learning can be, the more nuanced the thinking. So you really need to know something deeply. High agility develops, combining complex links and often contradictory parameters. Connecting, testing, doing, observing, and above all, communicating and articulating are all involved. Multiple knowledge modes intersect. Innovation occurs. In architecture, we become experts at things in a narrow way for a short period of time. It's quite painful to others. <laughs> for example, Rashapon, the architect of this pavilion, learnt about fishing nets for this soft roof. And in fact, there are three roofs here and one of them is a fishing net. She visited the makers and learnt from them. She applied this knowledge in a new context and made new knowledge. She looked outside the usual solutions with her problem in mind and inquired. She sort of knew what she was looking for, but she had the skills to connect. How can we teach this thinking? That is largely process-based, requires a lot of time, being comfortable in not knowing, where there is not one answer or a right or wrong answer, and is a little mysterious. And how do we teach the teachers? <laughs> we can, and we do. In architecture, it's taught through doing. Five years um, of practicing, making, testing, consistent reworking, with lots of feedback and guidance. That's just the five years in the institution, and then it keeps going. <laughs> but it is, this is, guided towards an outcome in architecture. But I think in design thinking, it's the learning involved in the design thinking that is valuable here as a way to grow independent thinkers ready to take risks. And this is this kind of knowing by doing is a pedagogy. And so, <laughs> Today, I anticipate that there might be two streams to this conversation, but who knows? <laughs> One is about the experience in the classroom that we might be able to share and kind of learn and stimulate this thinking. And the second might be about the barriers and issues facing this relatively new approach and how we might unsilo some of our doing and come together and support each other or at least have these conversations. And so I'd like to maybe start first with some of these experiences and then move into the barriers and issues so we don't get bogged down in that. <laughs> and I'd like to start to do that by just asking a few prompts um, that might get things flowing. I'm going to start with Andrew. <laughs> And I'd like to know about some experience about how you approach this uh, teaching through encounter. 
in the context where you are sort of making invitations for people to learn in, um, in like a setting like this, and you might not have as much time as you might in a, a longer design process. Yeah, great. Thank you, Louise. Um, excuse me, frog in my throat. So, the position that I'm in, in in this context is I have students that I've never met before for a very short period of time, and um, they need to be welcomed quickly, and you need to get some kind of hooks going that get them excited and curious and questioning and debating and critiquing very quickly. Um, and I think it's all about the direct encounter and especially with M Pavilion, the embodied encounter, so they can really pay attention to how the pavilion works in the space that it's in. And we try to, or my approach has been to try to unpack um, intuitively what students think the architect has tried to achieve, what their intentions were and what their inspirations were. And it's really um, interesting to find out uh, how they interpret the place that they're in, because I mean, the value of actually visiting M Pavilion is that they become uh, they become part of the audience that is the ideal end user, and they're able to speak from an informed position. So they're in the space, experiencing it as it was intended, um, and can then I know bounce out of that experience. Uh, I try to. I guess provide a few different modes of learning. So we move around, we speak, we listen. Uh, there'll be often some drawing. And in this instance, we are really lucky to have materials from the pavilion itself. So um, from the netting layer that's on the top of the pavilion and um, the lower waffle layer. And the students were able to use those materials to create their own uh, model pavilions and also to use some of the uh, engineering principles involved. So they created um, small models of tensile architecture, which really, I think, um, was exciting for them. And it's, it's also very authentically linked to the architect's process. So Ratchaporn and Allzone worked extensively with the materials and testing the materials. And so the students visiting could see that what they were doing was relevant to the process of realizing the pavilion itself. And I guess that's the case study window into this particular pavilion. Next time will be completely different, um, which is also what keeps the job exciting. Um, yeah, is there anything else you want me to zero in on? Um, no, I mean, I think you've raised some very important uh, techniques um, that go to the importance of the case study and, the ex and experiencing, um, which is harder, I suppose, in a classroom. Um, <laughs> Monique, uh, could you talk to that experience? Um, how do you bring that? that nuance in life and specificity into the classroom. And it might not necessarily always be about, I mean, Andrew talked about this case study and learning through actually a piece of architecture, but, it, but we are reminded that design thinking isn't necessarily about design. And I think that when I teach a class, it's almost the opposite to Andrew's experience because it is about them knowing themselves deeply and me knowing them deeply. And with that comes a metacognition of them understanding 
why are they learning what they're learning? How are they applying what they're learning? And noticing the skills that they're developing. And an example of that, which is a current one, is uh, I'm currently teaching mechanical engineering and we're building paper roller coasters and learning about kinetic energy and uh, measuring you know, speed through a marble running through a, a paper roller coaster, which sounds like a heap of fun. But when you break down the skills of what students are creating and doing in teams, it becomes a very relevant task for engineers because they're learning about themselves. What are they good at? What skills do they like to use as an engineer? Do they think in 3D? Are they better conceptually in, in working on paper or do they prefer to model and conceptualise in that way? So before we even enter the design making part of the, the unit of work, we learn and we practice skills so that they can ascertain their position in a team of students and they can form a team that is really well understood of, 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 the, of each other's skills and talents. And that's a completely different experience to what you were just describing. Um, and that metacognition is a really beautiful process to watch in young people because that's an understanding of uh, what they're learning is actually being learnt and applied and shown through that knowing and doing. And I don't think you see that magic in lots of classrooms uh, because sometimes what we learn, we don't visualise and see in, physical, in, in the physical um, production, yeah. Mm, I'm interested in this description of learning about yourself and how you think rather than just being sort of told what to think. <laughs> and do you articulate or try to articulate that with the students in the classroom? Like, it, do you sort of reflect, it's called reflective practice, where you stop at a certain point and sort of try to understand what just happened. And, and how do you do that? Because there's not a lot of words <laughs> around that type of thinking. I think it's an evolving sort of... Um, Yes, maybe lexicon. I, maybe I'll describe an activity that I do in class because then you can sort of sort of understand how students may experience it because that's a key part of, of teaching is that experience of and, and utilisation of different pedagogies and strategies. So what that looks like is at the end of every lesson, we pack up. But as we pack up, there'll be thinking prompts on the board so that students can use that time. So while they're doing something else, there's thinking happening. We can sit still and think, and we don't have to. We can think while we do other things. And when we're doing other things, when we're handling materials, when we're putting things away, when we're moving, sometimes that's a better thinking process. So reflection doesn't have to happen when you're in a, uh, a still state. Thinking can happen when you're doodling on a page and crumpling up a bit of paper and putting it in the bin. And thinking can happen when you're walking around the room processing what you've just achieved in a lesson. So that type of reflective practice is really important. At the start of every lesson, it's students will think about and plan what they're going to achieve in the lesson as well. So these activities are bookended. So they start the lesson with intention and then they complete the lesson with a, with a reflection. 
Yeah, I, I often say to my students that time is like the best friend of architecture, but you don't often have a lot of time. Does that influence how you plan your teaching? I mean, you're involved in sort of curriculum development. I hope I've got that term right. But in that, um, in that you can imagine that if something can roll out over time, so not over the day, but like over many weeks or even months... Um, you start to see differently, you know, because you've got those questions in your mind and you start to see solutions in the world or, you, you know, and, but you need time for that. How do you approach that? I think we would all do that in our jobs in different ways, planning the process, planning out parts, the, the steps that you take to do something and then put it in blocks of time, whether that be in uni practice or whether that be in an exhibition or an event that you would put together. I think we would all do that in some way. The beauty about curriculum is it provides this umbrella context and it provides the skills and the knowledge that students should learn. So that is what you're planning towards and that's the outcome that you're reaching towards. So in order for that reflective practice to take place, you would deliberately carry the questions through a longer time frame? Potentially, or be doing many things at once, depending on the unit of work, because the time is, as you said before, it can be a, it's a challenge and the curriculum is really full. So you don't have to teach something in isolation. You can teach skills, topics and knowledge in conjunction with one, one another. And we spoke about this in the, in the pre-meeting as well, is we don't work in silos of design and we don't work in silos of curriculum either. If we don't have uh, mathematical knowledge, then a lot of our design process wouldn't be uh, as solid as it would be. Okay. Yes, in, uh, in primary, I mean, I'm just talking from my experience of my own child who's 10. So they, you know, there's a wonderful thing called play worlds and they will have a theme and that runs for many months and they bring everything into that thread. Um, so there's not maths per se, but maths comes into, into the play world sort of thing. And so, Lira, you... You teach adults who are not necessarily designers um, design thinking that can be applied outside the design profession um, as well as tertiary students who are in design. Um, how do you do that? I'm interested in how you do that maybe differently for people who are outside the design world. Um, you know, what's the adult version of the play world? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, that's a good question. So I, I should preempt that my, my, um, most of my experience has happened in the tertiary education uh, within the design um, disciplines, as you said, moving between architecture, urban design, landscape architecture. But about a year ago, I was approached by Melbourne Uni, where I teach uh, in the, in the uh, Melbourne School of Design. I was approached to, to deliver what is called a microcert, which is a six-week course um, for professionals outside the design disciplines mainly um, who are interested in upskilling or getting some of this design thinking um, uh, skills basically and to me the challenge was precisely that Luis to um, synthesize or pinpoint what are the main stages in the process of design um, that could be beneficial for um, these other disciplines. Um, 
because there are a lot of things. If I was to talk about the experience within the design school, I will say there are many other skills, tools, knowledge that is involved. But if we just narrow it to the design thinking process, um, basically the, the first thing or first misconception was that uh, most students think that the design is a linear process where you have a great idea that strikes you, uh, you know, by walking in the park, and there you go. You just, you know, define it, um, uh, prototype it, done, you know, but that's not the case. Basically, as you uh, mentioned before, there is a lot of uh, iteration, a lot of uh, trial and error, and um, there, there's this, this um, thing of uh, encouraging the students to fail. Actually, you learn through failure. The more things you test, uh, the more things you are learning, and the better your um, um, design is going to become. Another thing that was, I think, interesting uh, to the students, which, by the way, the background I haven't mentioned, but the background is very diverse, anywhere from policymakers, high school teachers, health institutions, so non-designers was the fact that um, we go through a first phase of defining the design problem, the design target, and there is a lot of um, exercises related to empathy, which was very new to them, putting ourselves in the shoes of the different stakeholders, users, everybody involved in, in whatever it is that we are designing, whether it's an app uh, for your phone, for a health institution, or whether uh, it's some sort of a policy uh, that you are um, targeting. And um, so that, that was the first thing. Uh, then the fact that there is a lot of feedback between the different stages in the course, as I said, is a very short course. So we go through all this idea of uh, empathy diagramming and definition of problems. Typically, they deal with wicked problems, which I can talk in a second. Then they go through a uh, phase of uh, ideation. So we, I show different techniques by which they can prompt ideas and... They go through a process of prototyping, which doesn't necessarily mean building things. It's making whatever it is, whether it is the, you know, the different points of that policy, an app, um, or a physical prototype of sorts. And they go through the reflection. But conveying to them that this, again, is not a linear process. There is a lot of feedback between each of these stages. And sometimes you need to go three steps forward to move back again and redefine your problem because you discover something along the way that is meaningful to the way that you are actually targeting the, the problem. So I know I'm saying a lot of things, but basically the non-linearity, the embracing failure, um, um, empathy, very important in the whole design process. And I think all this was new and became very beneficial for the different um, uh, students that I've had in the two iterations of the course, which continues to be delivered. Uh, so we'll have many more iterations of it. But um, I think that was very beneficial for them. But then again, if I was to look into my design students, all this becomes so inherent. They don't have to think. Or oh, empathy, definition. It's just, you just do it continuously because it becomes ingrained in the way that you do things. So, yeah, that's... Yes, <laughs> but that, that's, um, that's also been a problem for yeah. our profession because we're not very good at articulating what we do. And that has led to a sort of condition where it's not understood yeah. and, not, and so not valued as much as it perhaps should be, or it's tied to, say, um, an outcome. 
yeah. uh, rather than the value. Yeah. Like, well, this <laughs> is uh, a problem of our own disciplines, of not being very good at communicating what, uh, what we do. But um, it was quite clear when I was uh, back in the day when I was at Harvard University at the Graduate School of Design, we noticed that a lot of design thinking courses were popping up in the law school, in the business school, and we were thinking, hey, they should come to us. We are the experts in design. So, and that started to happen, you know, like much more of an exchange of, you know, clarifying what we do that is relevant to those disciplines. Because as I say, within the design schools, we do many more things than just this one, as you know. But uh, starting to synthesize and see what, what can be helpful to them. Because, yeah, certainly there was an interest in those other schools to know how we do things. Yes. Yeah. And it sounds like a lot of what you're teaching uh, to, to these adults is about a kind of permission <laughs> to fail. Yeah. To try, to yeah. um, inquire, etc. Exactly. And so, uh, Peter, <laughs> you, among many other things, teach the teachers who uh, teach design thinking in... Um, Primary and secondary, or just secondary? Or? Mostly secondary, that's where yes. the, the, the need is, but also primary as well, okay. especially as they're looking at ways to develop STEM education in schools. Yeah. Which I imagine uh, requires some different approaches, but also I'm thinking about this permission, this permission to fail, this permission to um, try and test, and there's not one right answer, and you have to be confident to not know um, maybe you feel you're not creative. And I imagine there's a lot of emotional triage going on. Um, <laughs> can you talk about your experience of teaching the teachers? Yeah, look, yep. but, uh, some of you may or may not be aware, but there's a massive shortage of teachers in general in schools just now. Um, and particularly, like we know we've got the data that there are, I think 95% of schools in Victoria struggle to find design and technologies teachers. So you can safely assume that nearly everyone teaching this curriculum in primary and secondary schools has no background in design. Um, so you've got a lot of brave people putting themselves into that position. Some have been thrown in, <laughs> let's be fair. And uh, they come from a variety of different backgrounds. So they might be math teachers or science teachers. And that's just not a different body of knowledge. That's a different way of thinking, of being. And then you put them in this design education environment and it's a culture shock. It's really full on. First of all, there's like machines and noise and danger and kids running around and you know, they're not sitting in rows listening and doing what they're told. Um, but also there's, I mean, if you look at a maths curriculum, nearly every lesson or every week, there's a new topic. It's a frightening pace. Science isn't much difference. So when you start to talk to about giving them time, the students time to explore problems, time to generate ideas, time to investigate and experiment, develop prototypes and feedback to each other. And, you know, this is just like alien to most teachers. So, look, there's a real danger that I could, you know, repeat everything. Well, I think everything. this is the yeah. uh, moment when we tip into the issues, yeah. <laughs> barriers, yeah. but also hopefully rounding up with some opportunities and ambitions. But but it is... You know, it's, it's, uh, we want to hear about this. We want to, um, you know, know how this coming together might facilitate some um, Well, every, every designer <laughs> should see problems as opportunities, so let's give it a go. 
Um, so there's a there's a possibly a new movement of getting um, skilled people with design backgrounds, graduate industrial designers, architects, engineers, um, coding specialists, whatever, of getting them into education. But currently the pathways don't exist. There's not enough universities offering these courses. There are not, are not enough students thinking about going into education and, and seeing the opportunities there. Um, now, I'm really excited by the possibilities of getting young people into education with a design background because I imagine what they'll be like as education leaders. Once these people become leading teachers, assistant principals, principals, the schools will change dramatically um, when, when new people are in that environment. A lot of people who are in school leadership just now liked school the way it was, thanks very much, <laughs> and did very well. Um, so when you've got people that have maybe had different experiences coming with a new skill set, that's really exciting. But also the, the teachers, so we've done about 150 teachers over the past three years, upskilling them from different areas. They're taking that skill set back into their own subjects. They're taking design thinking back into maths, back into science, back into art. And they're really seeing a value in that. And that's where we're getting these genuine connections between curriculum areas and we're breaking down those, those silos. What would you change, Andrew, if there, you know, if there was some high level I'd things? I'd love to be called Andrew. Really... Oh, sorry, Peter, Peter. I prefer Andrew. Peter, sorry. That's okay. I think it's the accent. <laughs> yep. What would you, um, is there something that you would, you know, what's the one thing that you I think we should say? talk to people who are studying design, who are interested in design about education earlier and then providing those pathways for them. It's a great opportunity. Mm. It's something they could do whilst they're also developing their own practice. Um, so it doesn't have to be, you know, one career for the rest of your life, but it could certainly be something you come in and out of. As many artists do within art education, we need the same thing in design education. So you're saying that there just isn't that um, awareness of what a career in design can be? Yeah, I mean, like most design courses probably quite rightly focus on developing your design practice, but talking to them about, well, how do you also think about this in an education context? Lots of graduating students then maybe go on to lecture in the university that they studied at, but thinking about going into primary, going into secondary or other spaces, we could create more opportunities to get students out there in schools, helping existing teachers. Um, there would be a real need for that. We know there's a real demand. So it's sort of unsiloing that tertiary and primary and yeah. secondary. Well, the, the, the design education pipeline is broken. Currently, it really only starts at tertiary. Mm -hmm. So we need to start doing more in primary and secondary to improve that pipeline. But that would, I mean, again, we keep lapsing into the design with a capital D, sort mm -hmm. of, you know, I suppose, which is natural. But I suppose that would only assist this culture of design thinking um, as a way of learning. Look, pretend, look it's, a, it's one tool of many tools that you could use in education, but I think it's a particularly powerful tool, especially as a society, um, as a global community, we've got all these complex, scary problems to solve. And young people are concerned, quite rightly concerned about them. And they're leading, you know, they're the activists today. So if we can give them powerful tools for coming up with creative, innovative solutions, you know, that's what we all need. Um, you know, I could make a strong case that we could get rid of all traditional subject areas in school, base it purely on problem solving, 
and throw kids at these UN sustainability goals and there's your whole curriculum and you bring in everything in a relevant contextual way um, through that experience. It'd be quite interesting to see. What's stopping that from happening? Cash. <laughs> Money. Look, that's interesting because in technologies education, which is kind of my specialist area, there's design and technologies and digital technologies. And there's all the money in the world for digital technologies. You've got Apple, you've got Hewlett-Packard, you've got all these big multinational corporations trying to figure out how to get more kids into coding. We don't have that same industry backing in design. So how do we achieve that? And look, there are government organizations like Creative Victoria that do some things, but we could do a hell of a lot more. Andrew, do you go into schools with the work you do or you bring schools to the encounters? Uh, so at this stage, um, so this education season at M Pavilion is the first and it's been an experiment. It's been a successful experiment. Um, but currently it's a team of one, so we don't do any outreach. But that's definitely something that would be on the cards. And coming up to the decade of M Pavilion, we're thinking about the possibility of reactivating other pavilions and looking at schools that are in proximity to pavilions that have been rehomed. So a lot of the time the challenge is, um, you know, distance and the cash to do that. Um, so if we can kind of keep the direct encounter very central but make it more accessible for the schools, that's kind of the direction hoping to go in, I would say. That was going to be my next question about what your ambition um, ambitions were, but maybe do you have what would you like to see or what else would you like to do? Um, I would actually really love to develop the professional development aspect of the program. So we had one event this year, which was just inviting teachers in to experience the pavilion directly before the season kicked off. But I think there's so much potential to foster more of that. And I think building on what you've been talking about, Peter, the strengthening a connection between uh, architecture as a subject of learning and school-age students is just a huge opportunity. And I, I think the linkages are quite weak at the moment, considering how central the built environment is to our day-to-day -day lives. Um, yeah, I'd love to get more of that going. There's, there's schools that do do electives where students can consider architecture specifically within design, but I think... Um, that that could just be expanded a lot more, yeah. It sounds like us architects need to get more involved in this. <laughs> and thank you. Uh, Monique, what would you like to see happen? How are you, what's your ambition in this space? Maybe more with the design thinking rather than towards a design outcome necessarily? As I've been sitting here listening to Peter and to Andrew, I also think if I could steer the conversation just a little bit before I get back to your question, it's um, the perception of teachers is something that we really need to tackle. And what a teacher does every day needs to be of higher value. And I think they're two key things that if we address head on, that would do a lot for attracting new teachers into our profession, maintaining current teachers in the profession, and also allowing a deeper understanding that teaching and teachers grow all other professions. Without good teachers, 
we don't have that flow on effect of great school leavers. So we grow all the people in our society. We fill them with knowledge and we shape them into their pathway area. It's a pretty voluminous activity, isn't it? And that's not even thinking about the curriculum we teach or the domain areas. And I'm sitting here thinking I have the best job in the world and I wouldn't do another. So I, I, how do we get more people into it? I you know, we like to work, you know, can we sign people up? Um, it, it's an understanding of students of what we do every day in teaching and in design. How do we showcase students what our lives in work look like and what our job is, what thinking is involved in our job, what tasks are involved in our work? And just, you know, doing a bit of a U-turn back to your question and I think that's, that's part of that growth for students. What does an architecture's daily work look like? You know, if you're working as an architect and you're in an architecture firm, what is your daily tasks that are completed? What are, the, what are the challenging moments? What are the mundane ones? What are the ones you do as a team? What are the ones you do in isolation? What are the, what are the tasks you take home at night because there's no time in the day to do them because other jobs have that. It's not just teachers and marking. You know, that's, I think that's what we think of, uh, of in, if we compare our roles and jobs, that's what we think of. The mundane tasks sometimes as being overburdensome. So it's an awareness of students of having an understanding of what work and jobs look like and also that evolving nature of work and jobs. Teachers' jobs are evolving and becoming more challenging where other jobs are evolving and becoming maybe more exciting. They're utilising technology in new ways and harnessing new tools and new ways of working. Um, so there is a stark comparison there between the jobs that we do and also the jobs that we prepare stu students for. Yeah, and maybe uh, in this reinvention <laughs> of all things, you know, the, the mode of teacher could be rethought as well, perhaps similar to the work that Andrew's doing where it's not that someone like myself would suddenly become a teacher in high school or primary school. <laughs> But there might be moments of, of that where um, students come to us or we go to them in a more sustained way rather than just, just the talk or something. Can you imagine doing that, Liara? <laughs> yeah, um, I think... Actually, I think that will be a, an, an interesting thing to have those moments. I, um, again, um, I recall back in the US, uh, there was actually summer programs where students, high school students that were perhaps thinking about entering the design world will come for a month. And typically they were taught by our more senior students. <laughs> and there were other professors supervising, but it was a, a great moment for them to get in the, in the skin <laughs> of what will be to become a design student and later, hopefully, a design professional. So I think that, um, those def definitely could be good opportunities to do that uh, as much as other, other exchanges uh, that perhaps are even shorter term than that, but, um, but more regular, as you said, not just the one-off lecture. So. Yes, but I think I can see, again, it's, it's about the design professions, but it's also, again, I keep bringing it back to the design thinking, and... We, uh, which is 
powerfully taught through example, through doing. So I suppose coming into that context is um, useful. But also for the teachers, I think. And I think that uh, what I'm hearing as a profession is that we need to make that space for that and uh, sort of de-silo that separation between tertiary and K to 12 sort of thing. Um, and, and I think demystify what we do and articulate more what we do. So that connection between design with a capital D, let's say, for want of a better term, and design thinking can be made um, and that the processes can then be applied yep. outside of design. Yeah, no, I think uh, definitely making that distinction clear, the capital D or the design thinking process is very important in the sense that, uh, as I said, when I deal with my design students, of course, we do far more things than just the stages of design thinking. But yet, I think it's very relevant, the design thinking process, uh, for a lot of other students, professionals, uh, etc. So to me, the a key uh, aspect is that one about um, removing these silos, whether they are between design disciplines and having far more bridges and engagements among us, or whether it is, as um, you were mentioning, um, about um, removing subjects as, they, as we know them, for example. Um, I think basically what we want is to create... I've, I feel, good thinkers for the future. I mean, we are talking about a lot of uh, skills, but even in our, you were mentioning about what do we do day to day as architects? Well, even that is changing rapidly. I mean, how scary is AI right now, for example? You know, what are architects gonna be turned into in the near future? But I think the thinking, the thinking process, being able to deal with all these wicked problems, you also pointed out a lot of pressing uh, subjects, climate change, health, waste, uh, you name them, you know, they are going to need more than an AI engine to produce solutions. So we really need to um, create, I think, um, uh, citizens of the world that, that are able to, to think across uh, subjects and to think more uh, globally and think uh, being able to generalize things and find connections, not necessarily being the ones coding or the ones, which don't get me wrong, it's also important to know uh, some of the core aspects of your profession or your area, but I think it's equally important to be able to connect, connect to other, to other areas basically. And being, I think that's where, um, yeah, the, the, uh, that will be my desire for the future when you ask everybody else about <laughs> what's your wish. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. That's fine. I might, uh, we're sort of coming towards the end, yeah. um, open it up to some questions. Yeah. I want to, um, that might stimulate, you know, some more thoughts. Just also acknowledge that uh, there's a lot of people already working in this space, doing the things we're sort of talking about and asking many, three of, four of whom are here today. Uh, but I suppose, um, you know, our ambition in setting up this talk uh, with, through the Robin Boyd Foundation was that that could be, you know, another way to facilitate this type of coming together. So I, I think from what we've heard now today that we could go away and think about how that, how that might occur as you know, another little inroad into this um, wonderful but also challenging space. So, 
So I'd like to um, invite any comments, questions, reflections. Thank you so much. I, I um, am new to the concept of design thinking, but I am really excited by it because I think it, it will um, uh, bring the sciences and arts together. And I work in um, museums and gallery space, and I am constantly frustrated that it's called STEM and not STEAM, for one thing. Um, but my question is, how can we emphasize the importance of the imagination through ideation and visualization um, um, to, as part of the, you know, what's important in, in solving the wicked problems? How can we generalize, you said? Emphasize, okay, uh, yeah, good. Uh, to, to me, I mean, um, uh, again, I'm not, perhaps Monique will be able to speak better about this in the, at the level of primary and secondary, but uh, uh, when it comes to my students, the adults that Luis was mentioning, and even my design students, the masters and undergrad, uh, basically, ideation should be their old all the time, in the sense that they they, they should, um, uh, when it comes to the adults that they are new to this, we have several um, tasks. We we use either the crazy ten exercise by which they have fifteen minutes to put together ten ideas. You know, don't worry how crazy they are, but let's put them on paper. Let's put them with no, note it, uh, doodle it, however, but just put it out. You know, and explain it, and and then we'll see how feasible, how good they are, how, what, how much potential they have or not. But this is something that I, I encourage my students uh, constantly to really come up with ideas and just don't wait for the great idea. Just put as many as you can down there on, the, on paper and we'll talk about them, you know, then we'll, we'll see again where, where, they, where they lead. But um, I think this happens at many levels. Again, it's not just in the D with capital D in terms of, you know, architectural design or, or uh, industrial design or whatnot, but um, even organizationally, the uh, one of our students came from the H HR department of a big company, you know, so, so uh, had lots of ideas for uh, how to manage certain part of the HR department and, and she will just, you know, uh, name the, the ideas and, and then move forward from that. So I think it's something that can happen in any area, no? Coming up, yeah. <laughs> As we were sitting here, I just jotted down some terms that are in our curriculum. And so these terms are at the front end of all of our outcomes and they provide a framework for how we should teach the outcome that follows. So some of those words are construct, investigate, explore, create, solve, develop, explain, analyze. And all of those are doing terms and they all encourage imagination, critical, creative thinking, problem solving, design thinking. So I think that our curriculum does that how we teach those outcomes is something different. So what does that then look like in the classroom? How are we showing a student to construct? How are we providing them with the thinking strategies to analyse or the framework to analyse? Are we giving them space to create? Are we providing them with resources to develop? 
or is our instructional practice more teacher-centric, teacher-led, teacher-focused? So I think that our curriculum is there and it has those terms in it as a guidance of how we should be teaching the outcomes in the curriculum. And if I just run through them again, because I think that they're quite a, a, a thing to emphasise, that's construct, investigate, explore, create, solve, develop, explain and analyse. And they're not just in the design curriculum. You'll find them in mathematics, you'll find them in science, arts, humanities, health. Thank you. Sounds like a very positive learning environment, which is probably how to emphasise imagination is you have to feel like your idea is valid. Yep. And one thing that I forgot to mention is the role of the teacher, in, in this case, me, um, with my students, is not that, and this was mentioned by somebody before, not that that is going to tell the student what to do or what I expect from them, but rather I'm part of their team, basically. It's something that, you know, I'm there to generate discussion, to help them think, but not to tell them how to uh, come up with those ideas. I mean, I, yeah, I can show them techniques, whatnot, but we, I usually tend to tell my students we are building knowledge all together. So we are just having this discussion and I'm always amazed at the things I learn through the conversations with my students. So to me, that's the exciting part of, yeah, as well be part of, part of this, basically. Just building on what you both said, I think um, identify with what you're talking about, like being within a team with your students, like a, trying to create a fairly horizontal environment. Um, but I guess with teaching in art and teaching in design, I feel like you can't help anyone use their imagination any better than they already can. But what you can do is give them orientation and areas in which to exercise that. So you can say, we've got this technique, this is what we're working with for the next five minutes, but the rest is really up to you. Or these are the constraints, this needs to have this kind of function, how you get there is entirely up to you. And then just being very accepting and supportive and open. Um, and I guess maybe with imagination, with fostering imagination within a kind of constructive framework as well, being really careful about where the constructive criticism comes into the process so there's enough time to bloom and feel a bit of confidence in experimentation but then also benefit from someone saying, well, yes, but then what about this kind of thing happening? So there's, you know, some mediation but at a very at the right time, yeah. Just in relation to the question, I'm going to come back to this, but if I don't say it, remind me, PISA, right? PISA is an important thing. But first of all, the schools in education are the hardest institutions to change because everyone's an expert in it. Everyone experienced it as a child. Everyone has experienced it through the perception of a parent. Um, so we all think we know what teachers do and how they work. And that can put a lot of people off it, especially if you're a creative sort and you didn't much like school. And the thought of going back into school as a teacher, as an educator is terrifying. Um, and we see all the time that people come into uh, tertiary spaces to be a, a lecturer and they start acting like a teacher. They start telling the students everything. They've got a two hour PowerPoint and you know the students don't get much of a chance to do anything. And so you have to kind of deprogram them. 
So there's a tremendous opportunity to change how education is done. Um, and you can't teach design thinking through traditional methods. You can't teach it through lockstep or repetition. It's got to be um, a practice that is kind of supported and developed and the students will get there. So it's not linear, it's not five stages, <laughs> although design thinking you know, shows that. It's ambiguous, it's messy, it's iterative, all of these things that we said before. Now, we reckon it's valuable to do because it'll increase creative thinking and complex problem solving. That's the value in it, we think, right? PISA are now measuring creative thinking globally for the first time. So normally they measure literacy and numeracy, science. Um, you don't undertake something like measuring creative thinking lightly. <laughs> Some people think you shouldn't even do it. Even the attempt to measure it would kill it. So, I mean, that's a, I, I'm not really into standardized testing. I'm not a big fan of PISA. I don't want to rank schools and countries. I'm not into that. But the fact that they've decided that this is an important thing to investigate and attempt to do, despite how difficult it will be, shows the value that they know it will have. So it's part of their approach to transformative competencies, which is basically trying to make the world a better place and giving skills that, uh, to students and society to be able to do that. Um, so I think we're at a real turning point. I think COVID has helped us to think about new ways of, of providing education and facilitating that learning that we're talking about. And it is that facilitation, not, you know, what I'm doing just now. Teacher talk. Thank you. Um, it's quite a thorough answer from everybody, from the panel. <laughs> um, was there any last questions as we are sort of reaching the end of our time? Tony? Maybe the first question was five, one, two, three, five definitions of what the what of creative, what is creative thinking? You've talked a lot about the how and you've sort of headed towards, the, I've got a lot of notes, so there are some hints in them of what you think. You want us to give our word? I want your definition, uh, five definitions. I think it's uncovering. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to do this. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I thought we were going along. Uh, I would say this might seem like a bit of a weasel thing, but it's like inspired thinking. So it's something where you've been pushed or motivated to move in a different direction by something that's distracted you or caught your attention, and then you're pursuing that. So um, we talk about the learning area as developing creative problem solvers. So we're coming at it much more from that perspective, and aesthetics and things will come into that. Um, but if the, the PISA thing, they've written a whole paper and they've got four different areas of what creative thinking is. And the area that most relates to, I think, what we're talking about is kind of social problem solving, solving the problems within society. Yeah. yeah. To me, sorry, because I said let's jump because I needed to think for a minute. Uh, to me, creative thinking is to move away from the pure problem solving and think a bit more laterally and finding opportunities that add a surplus to what you are proposing as a solution. Because solutions, there are many solutions to a problem, but what is the add-on by having um, gone through that creative thinking, basically? What is the extra that you are bringing to the table through your creativity? Because again, solutions, usually there are multiple solutions to a problem, very direct ones, off-the-shelf solutions, best practices, whatnot. But what else are you bringing through uh, the, des the design, uh, the creative thinking that you're going through. That, yeah. 
think it's actually about resource use, creative thinking, and that output that comes with it. So how are you connecting the dots and joining things in new ways and drawing from the, the criterion, the, um, the benchmarks that you've got to hit and the limitations and finding the sweet spot of all of those things to have an output. And I think the creativity is actually knowing where to dial up, where to dial down of all of those aspects that we've just talked about to produce the thing in the, in the end. I enjoyed that question and I appreciate the thinking time that I had and the panellists that allowed me that thinking time to have that, so thank you. Well, thank you very much to Lyra, Monique, Andrew and Peter. I've really enjoyed the discussion. Um, I just wanted to leave you all with some words from today. Being in, visiting, talking, listening, drawing, case study, articulating, teams, learning about skills you have, how you think, time, reflecting, play, non-linear, iterative, testing, failing, defining, empathy, feedback, ideation, prototyping, making, reflection, discovery, permission, doing, but also a crisis in teaching, difficulty of the different modes of knowing, a culture shock, lack of time, a lot of baggage, the need for skilled people to get involved, teacher perception, deprogramming required. But the last one, which I think is really great, is that big change is possible. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.